0: This episode of The Luminaries on Deep in the Weeds is proudly supported by Deputy. Rostering and timesheets without the usual chaos.
1: Letting the customer dictate the experience to an extent just makes people comfortable and then they enjoy it. And I want people to feel something when they come to Slope in. I want them to walk away feeling like, that was a good experience and I feel better, I feel nourished, I feel like someone said hello and really cared about my experience and, you know, it was just personable, that's hospitality.
0: This is The Luminaries on the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. What's it like taking a hiatus from a career you love? How after years away from the game do you reinvent yourself and not only thrive but make a real success of everything too. There are no rules when it comes to the way one pieces together their career but a common theme of drive, passion and belief can make just about anything happen. Karina Armstrong is a co-owner and chef of the Salopian Inn in McLaren Vale, South Australia. Karina, how are you?
1: I'm great, thanks Anthony.
0: You've uh, you made a huge change in your life after leaving your career for a period of time and and moving back into it. And the impact has been incredible on the culinary landscape of South Australia, but what was it like that transition for you coming back into the industry?
1: Um, That was actually really terrifying. (laughs) I, um, it was because I had been doing bits and pieces. So I took time off. Um, I have three children under the age of five, um, three boys And um, in amongst that, I was doing little bits still connecting into the industry. I wrote um, food articles for the advertiser here in South Australia um, and I would show up and do emergency shifts in various restaurants, but I was never – it was pretty funny actually – but I was never completely in a job or in a role um, for that time. Um, And so to suddenly go, not only am I going to return – to cooking full-time, but I'm actually going to have my own restaurant and I've got a two-and-a-half-year-old. When I say it out loud now, I just, oh, like you would just tell someone don't do it, but um, I was really, I felt really vulnerable and I felt really quite um, not confident, but the drive was, I don't know, it just came from somewhere within me that I just had to go back to doing it again. I knew I was going to be a better parent from doing it, which Um, is now on reflection. I wouldn't have said that at the time. I felt really guilty with young children going back and doing it. But now I realise I did the best thing for my children. I really did.
0: Take us back to that time. How long had you sort of been away from sort of full-time work in a kitchen and, and had the industry changed a lot when you did make that move back in?
1: Oh, it was hilarious. I've been out for seven years <laughs> and I was um, helping um, down at a local restaurant and there was a young chef there, Sam Pratt-Smith, who was a really good chef, and he was sous everything because this is all in that time frame when, you know, that was all going crazy. And so I was looking at food in plastic bags and water going, oh, this is all a bit different. <laughs> um, and I still don't cook food like that because I – I was never trained like that. And I appreciate it very much so, you know, different learnings and skill. But I actually just put my two feet on the ground and went, I'm still going to be me. That was still there somewhere in me that I was just going to cook the way I knew how to cook. And maybe because I was so busy with family, I just didn't have time to think, oh, let's change this. I just thought, let's do it the way I know how to do it. And I'm still very much like that. Like I love learning new things, but I will always go back to what feels right in my gut and in my palate and in my mind. I always go back to that.
0: Well, well, let's go back to how that philosophy and ethos came about. When did you first start getting interested in food when you were young?
1: Um, I'm very fortunate. My mother um, is an amazing cook. And I just never realized that other people's mums didn't baked bread. I just thought that's what you did. And we lived in um, a southern suburb in Adelaide, Moorfoot Vale, which is not overly glamorous, but we had half of our sort of standard quarter an acre block was vegetable garden. Again, I just didn't realise this wasn't normal. And these my parents are British immigrants. They're 10 pound pomps, But they came here and turned into these mad hippies and <laughs> started growing all their own food. So I thought that was normal. So as I've got older, I've realised my interest in cooking actually started really young, and I would cook the whole family meal at thirteen. But had taught me, but I didn't think anything of it. I just did it, and Mum's like Mum still talks to me now, going, "You just did it," like she, and she loved it because someone else was helping. Um, but it was there, and then of course, you know, I um, at eighteen, I was working on the floor in hospitality. I was actually in Hobart. And um, they needed someone to help in the kitchen for the night. And I kind of looked and went, yep, I reckon I could, I could help. Sure, it sounded, you know, not too hard what they were asking. And I did that shift and I still remember. I still remember the chefs I worked with that night and it was like I'd found my people. Like they were bonkers like me. Um, they had so much energy and there was this sense of being a part of something. Like you were a part of a team. You were a part of a as you know, a group of people that were trying to achieve a goal together, and I've always loved team sport and playing sports, so I kind of could see that perhaps I could get a role within this team, and I could be a part of something. And I've always loved food and eating; that, that's <laughs> that's pretty key. Um, but I loved it was the energy and it was the the drive of these people around me and the focus that I really um, was attracted to
0: early on in your career you spent uh, quite a bit of time in melbourne what, what triggered that move and, and what was that like for you
1: well it's funny i ended up getting an apprenticeship at this the sheraton it was at that time in hobart on the waterfront and i signed my papers and the next day they said to me oh by the way this hotel's been sold like, oh, okay um but that was okay because I got transferred to the Sheraton in Melbourne. It was fortuitous. It was just such luck. And because I'd never planned to move there. So the Sheraton picked me up and moved me to Melbourne. And I worked at, um, it was a very new hotel at that stage. And I worked there. And the hotels at that stage, they still had butcheries, they still had fishmongers, they still had patisserie sections. Like they were really, really good places to do some foundational learning. Um, but at the same time, I was training at Hill TAFE and got to meet this lady, Wolf Tusker. And I was just, I was besotted, is probably the best word, in how she talked about food and that she was running this place in the country. And, you know, I'd grown up in not a country like Dalesford, but definitely away from a city. And I was comfortable in that setting. Um, so. I just went up to visit the lake house and then that was it. It was – I just went to the lake house, finished my apprenticeship there and then stayed on after my apprenticeship as well. Um, And, yeah, really learnt about cooking at the lake house.
0: Take us into that kitchen. Do you have any stories of of that time and the impact it had on you?
1: So that kitchen – Again, you look back and Jake Nicholson was actually my apprentice, which is, I know, I know, and we still laugh about it because it was just, I mean, Lake House now has grown into um, what it is today, which is, I think, one of the key leaders in our industry in terms of accommodation, food and offering and just hospitality experience. And it was still that at that that stage, this is the early 90s, but it was in its infancy and Allah was still in the kitchen all the time. Alan was around and painting and Larissa was sort of, you know, 14, 15. So it's, it was so different to what it is now. But it was that great, mad hospitality, everybody get in. And again, 100% focus. Ulla taught me about working hard and having focus and looking at the seasons and really cooking seasonal food, Um, which, you know, perhaps it wasn't quite as well known then, although, you know, people have been cooking like that for such a long period of time. In a cooking professional sense, no one had ever really said to me, "No, of course you can't use tomatoes now, you you know, it's June, Karina, like no. Um, And she was a really, really, really strong mentor. So that kitchen was, yeah, it was fantastic. It was chaos <laughs> in the best possible way. Like you just worked so hard, but because there was so few staff really for what they were achieving, like you just got to do everything. So I'd do a day rod, you know, around the pastry section as a third year apprentice. Like I've got such opportunity, but yeah, with Jake as well in there, just lots of laughter and yeah lots of shenanigans basically. <laughs>
0: You teamed up with the Karen Martini at the Melbourne Wine Room as well. How different was it working with Karen compared to Ulla?
1: Um, I um, wanted to move down and, you know, live in the city and um, met Karen and went to the wine room. Loved the feeling of the place as well because at that stage, um, it was still very much, uh, you know, a really humming Friday night, Saturday night, super cool bar. Karen had the high-end restaurant in there and she had the bar food. Um, and working for Karen um, was quite similar as to working for Allah in that they're both very seasonally based chef, really um, strong on providence of produce. But Karen's flavours are really bold, like they're amazing. And she um, taught me a lot about sort of letting go of being everything having to be so perfect on the plate and to worry more about flavour and how is that going together. And it was just a really good progression in cooking into another style. Um, but also, um, learning, I learned a lot about wine at the wine room as well. Um, the staff that were there at the time, again, amazing. Morris was, um, Not there, but his presence was. If that's the best way I can put it, so you got to try a lot of um, great wine as well. So I learned there more about that whole hospitality experience. So food, wine, and it doesn't have to be high end to be amazing. And that's what I walked away from, going, okay. So you can sit in a concrete floored you've still got a beautiful napkin, you've got this amazing food. It doesn't all have to be white linen tablecloths. And that sparked something in me because I'm like, you know, I, I understood how Karen cooked and continued working for Karen on and off. Uh, I think it's about five or six years from there. Um, yeah. Yeah. In and out. So obviously went to icebergs after that, but I'd worked, you know, in between in other places and traveled into Asia and all sorts of stuff. But yeah, Karen's food is just, it's so refreshing and, Um, beautifully balanced, but lots of great fresh ingredients in there as well.
0: You briefly mentioned icebergs. You spent uh, quite a bit of time in Sydney as well at at Billy Kwong. Tell us about the impact that those experiences in Sydney had on the way that you cook.
1: Um, So the the transfer up to, I moved up to Sydney. Um, I knew Karen was um, part of the opening team for icebergs. And I was in Melbourne. I was ready to do something new and it was either go overseas or um, I had family in Sydney as well. So there was the added bonus of being close to my family. And um, I rang Karen and she actually thought I just wanted to go out for a drink. She's like, no, I'm a bit busy. Sorry. I'm like, no, I'd like a job. I'd like a job. And there was just dead silence. She's like, right, when can you come? So, um Yeah, I was part of an opening team and I've never opened a restaurant before and probably never will of that scale and size. So that was incredible to see. And I was um, just perfectly – I had – no absolute idea how big the opening of icebergs was in the sydney landscape i was just really focused on supporting karen um and doing a good job so i didn't get overwhelmed by what was happening and just got to enjoy the experience which was amazing um when you see a restaurant of that scale and size come together it's you know it's breathtaking and working for morris was something Um, that will always be with me. His um, attitude to service is just so detailed and he has so much energy for everything being perfect, but it's not, it's every day. Like it's this constant energy of pushing to get better. And that combined with the opening and Karen's food, I found um, it was a really good lesson. And I think, you know, something I try now to always have in me every time i walk into Salopian and it's what can we do better and and really helping the people around me to push forward and that's what i think morris does so incredibly well
0: kylie Kwong is uh, one of australia's most celebrated chefs and restaurateurs He spent time at billy Kwong in that kitchen a real detour from the food that you were had been cooking was it what was that like
1: um. Yeah, amazing. Um, so I had done a couple of years at Icebergs um, and um, my partner at the time who became my husband and I just would eat at Billy Kong. It was when it was on Crown Street on those little stools and you lined up out the front at 6 o'clock because you wanted to get a table. Um, and then um, a job came up, um, advertised, and I thought, yeah, why not? Um, my love for um, Southeast Asian food was already there. I'd travelled all through Vietnam and Laos, and really, really loved the food. Um, and so, got the job there, and it was a, that kitchen was incredible at that time. It was um, Tama, um, O'Kerry, and Hamishing, and um, and a few others popped in and out at the same time, and it was just I'd never worked with just four chefs. Um, everyone knew what they were doing. Everyone was a really high-level uh, cook, and you got, um, you got slammed from 6 o'clock. It was incredible. <laughs> but you'd watch them line up, so there's just like this level of, oh, my goodness, here it comes, and it did. Um, but working for Kylie, I mean, her food is amazing. There's, you know, there's no doubt about that. Um, but I learnt from her that, and I think it's really profound, it's really stayed with me, that kindness isn't weakness. So she's incredibly kind to work for. She wanted to know my story. She wanted to know all the stuff, like she connects with people. But she would be so generous and kind, but you still knew you had to do your job. And you wanted to do your job better for her because, you know, there's this person that actually wants to know what's happening in my life and, you know, how I'm balancing everything. Um, And I just think that so often as a, particularly as a female trait, that kindness sometimes is perceived as weakness. And I actually think it takes now real strength to be kind and to look after your staff or look after the community you sit in. And I have such admiration for what she's doing in a wider sense now as well. And I can see how her journey from Crown Street in, in many ways has led her down this path of being so involved in community and giving giving so much. And so it's almost like you could see it at the infancy at Crown Street where she gave so much to her staff and now it's broadened out. And to me that's that's the epitome of being a good hospitality professional is seeing beyond the walls of your restaurant it's into your community it's yeah I think it's really incredible
0: This episode of The Luminaries on Deep in the Weeds is proudly supported by Deputy helping managers and staff do their best work At Deputy we're on a mission we're on a mission to simplify shift work for every cafe every restaurant every bar every business owner every dishie every waiter every cook every sous chef this is the industry that will thrive with deputy for more information go to deputy.com how did you go from these amazing restaurants in uh, melbourne and sydney and, and and find yourself in south australia where you've become you know one of the most influential hospitality uh, professionals there
1: um, there's sort of two parts to that. Um, so Michael, my husband, um, got a job in Macquarie Vale, um, and I was still in Sydney, and, and we were commuting for a time, um, which is um, which was actually quite okay. We didn't have children at that time, and it, you know it's always fun. Um, but my father actually became quite unwell as well, and that was sort of the final pull to go actually know it's time and I was 30 and I was very much wanting to have a family as well and you know I'd grown up right next to McLaren Vale on the beach side um, and the idea of living back within sort of my area and I could support mum and dad was that was a pretty big pretty big driver to come back.
0: Tell us about that period of time uh, and sort of immersing yourself into South Australia and beginning beginning a family, did, did that have an impact on the way that you saw food and cooked as well?
1: Uh, it definitely did. So as soon as I came back, I just kept going into the central market. So if you know South Australia, McLaren Vale into the, into the Adelaide CBDs, about a 45-minute drive, and I was finding myself constantly going to the central markets and the Wollonga farmers' markets Um, And looking at this produce and laughing sometimes going, oh, we used to get that in Sydney. And of course, you know, King George Whiting in Sydney was $60 a kilo, (laughs) you know, back home. But um, I just reconnected straight back into the food and the markets because the markets for me um, also had that cultural diversity that I'd loved so much in Sydney and Melbourne and being in Asia. Um Adelaide at that time, particularly in McLaren Vale was really white and really Anglo and I missed all the noise and colour of all and smells of all the different cultures. So I kept I <laughs> driving into the city all the time. Um, and then, you know, trying to enter back into restaurants I found really, really tough because um I came back here and lots of restaurants were still ordering like fillets of fish and I'd been used to buying whole fish and breaking it down myself. So It was a real transition, and in my mind I knew that to do it the way I wanted to do it, I wanted it to be my own at some stage. But then, of course, Harry came along, so I was quite busy. (laughs) Um, But cooking at home as well, um, I cook the same way as I would in a restaurant, like it's still very ingredient. So I was in that seven years, I got to play around with a lot of ingredients and recipes and in terms, I was still very much thinking about food all the time. And as my husband would say, the the dinner parties were actually starting to get pretty ridiculous. (laughs) 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 Yeah. You
0: you spoke of this desire to get back into the industry. There was a time where where the desire was so strong and you, and you took the plunge again. Um, Tell us about that period. What, 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 what triggered that sort of desire and that need to get back into the industry?
1: Um, for me, it was – I had all these – I had this concept of this restaurant in my head, and it actually wasn't going to be Salopian. We um, had tried to um, buy another venue, and I had um, – and it fell through. But I had this desire to put together this crazy eclectic menu and see if it could work. Um, I am obsessed with steamed, you know, the buns. I'm obsessed with dumplings. Um And I was just really driven to see if it could be done in a wine region and if it could be this producer-focused restaurant within a wine region. You know, was it even possible? And could I do it? And could I, you know, could I be good enough to actually have a successful restaurant? Like it was such a gamble. (laughs) I'm such a gamble because I was you know, I I remember my first service at Salopian, you know, we opened at twelve and I still hadn't really worked out how the food was gonna go out. Like I just wasn't I do I wasn't like game fit an athlete would say. But you know, we really quickly worked it out. Um and I had I had some really nice support, Darren, uh sorry, Sharon and David from Fino. We're just down the road and i never forget David Swain walked in the kitchen, gave me a big hug and said, you'll be amazing. And sometimes it's just someone just saying, no, you've got this, you can do this because the self-doubt I was plagued with was phenomenal. Like it was – you know panic attacks, and i can 't do this, what have I done? like you know my husband's quit his corporate job it's all on me. what am I going to do and i've got three children, and one of them's still in nappies, like what have I done and and it's in those moments you go you find your grit like you just have to do it, so I just made myself do it, and it came back quicker and quicker, and then I just kept calling friends in the industry that, you know, I still knew in Sydney and Melbourne and just asking questions and what's happened and, you know, what's happened with this and what's happened with that and how do I um, manage it. And that was really good. Reaching out to your network, you know, um,
0: really helped. You mentioned the eclectic sort of food that you wanted to to do. Can you give us an idea of of what that means on the plate?
1: Um, It's bonkers. I don't know how. It does work. But it was, so for me, it was more about that every dish should have acid, fat, sweet, salty, sour. And where they come from doesn't matter. It can be anchovies and cheese in an Italian dish. But I wanted that to sit next to a piece of red braised meat. But the palate and the flavour profile balance was similar. So in my mind, you know, everything's got a bit of spice. So in my mind, it made sense. (laughs) When I said it out loud to a few people, they went, oh, really? (laughs) But... Obviously, it's, you know, it's still going. We're still quite careful with it. Like when we curate tasting menus, it's like you, you have to be careful because, you know, of course we want people to drink McLaren Bell wine or, you know, wine with it as well. So we're, we're um, sensitive to those flavour balances as well. But, you know, it can be that you'll have um, beautiful um, like a, a carp tartare or kangaroo tartare to start with and then we'll take you through to some, like a beautiful Turkish style bareck. But we'll take you on a journey and we kind of almost, it's like tiptoeing through a garden. You just take people through it gently. So you don't go straight from the soy to the cheese, you transition them through. And look, we really try, I've got an amazing team in the kitchen and um, at the whole staff of Salopian. So we really work together to try and take people on that journey.
0: Was there a moment where you found your feet at the slopian where you where everything was working in motion and you and you felt like you'd found what you're looking for?
1: You know what? I still haven't had that moment. I have moments <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just, I, I have moments where it feels calm and it feels just joyful, and perhaps that's what that is. And I have moments more now where I see my staff doing it. And like expressing what I've taught them. And that to me is actually the proudest moment. Not when I do it. It's when someone else does it. It's when your 21-year-old apprentice, you know, tells the person walking in the door, no, this is how you do it. And I've imparted a little bit of my food philosophy that Allah and Kylie and Karen taught me onto this 21-year-old. And that's actually when I feel like I've done something worthwhile.
0: Take us into the garden and the region as well. I know you grow um, a percentage of the ingredients that you use, but you also connect with local producers. Um, do you have any stories of, of some of the local producers and the importance that they have on what you do?
1: Um, uh, this, producers are the backbone of our industry, and I really don't think um, they get enough highlight, highlighting of like the hard work they do. Um, and my journey into growing our own fruit and vegetables has made me realise how emotionally invested you'll get into a particular crop of something. So I can't imagine when it's, you know, full herds and, um, you know, full gardens full of, you know, one particular thing. Um, you know, there's a lot going on there. Um, but for me, the local producer that I've worked with the longest is um, Tom Bradman from Nomad Farms. Um He is a regenerative farmer that is really walking the walk. Um, His primary goal is land generation, regeneration, pardon me, and then the protein production comes from that. Um, So I've been buying Tom's chickens. We tried to work it out the other day. I think it's eight years, and I think I've missed one or two weeks in eight years. Um, Even during COVID, we just found a way to keep going because you really have to... I always, I don't, I think of a producer as almost like a joint venture, like we're doing this together. It's not just me buying chickens from you and I need them to be 1.8 kilos every week. I just need chickens that have tread lightly on this earth and that have been bred with care and um, some real connection to taste, flavour, of course, but also where they've been raised, what they've done, um, how they've been moved around. And, you know, Tom will just ring me and go, do you know what? They're 2.2 2 kilos this week. That's how it is. Um, and also he has beef, lamb and <laughs> actually also does wool now as well, as in, you know, they're taking the wool off and making their own wool. So my connection with Tom's um, farming there and through our food has been really inspirational for me. Because now the questions I ask other suppliers are far more in depth. Like he's taught me a lot. So I think having producers around you that make you think about food in turn make you a better cook because you treat that produce so much more carefully. Um, you know, And it might be a beautiful bunch of beetroots that um, the village greens of Wollongong have have. Um, grown for us but you know you don't just throw it all out like you roast the whole thing um, you enjoy it um, and you know you become I've become evangelical about producers I think what they do is important and I think it's a real reflection on the South Australian culture now that we have such diverse and such high level producers you know and I think that says more about a community that you know these producers in a lower population state are able to thrive because more people are valuing that.
0: You have uh, what is considered by many as one of the best regional restaurants in the country. What are the challenges and also benefits of running a, a restaurant in the in a regional area?
1: Um, so Alex, marketing my business partner and I, uh, it's definitely um, staffing. Um, you know, we've got amazing customers. They keep rolling in the door, but it's definitely – um, finding staff that want to live a regional life and definitely more are wanting to. Um, so it it's a very common problem in the regions um, across hospitality really at the moment. So um, And staff that come and work with us either stay for three weeks or four years. It's either one or the other <laughs> um, because we do do things a little bit differently. Um, so it's definitely staff is a challenge Um But more and more we're finding people really appreciate coming out to a region, um, exploring, immersing, having an experience like within the business. And we're just trying always to teach our staff how valuable every customer that walks through the door is and how different they are and that they're all looking for different unique experiences and we need to look after everyone. Um, service is such a big part of what we do and what we offer. And I think that's one of the reasons um, we've had some success is that people walk in that door and they feel acknowledged, they feel valued. Um, and, and we try and make sure they have a really good time.
0: You took a gamble on sort of your dream and, and they have really thrived. Do you have any advice for um, young operators looking to sort of do what they believe in and step into their own business for the first time.
1: There's very much. I've got two um, schools of thought on this now. Um, I nearly went completely bankrupt year three in, and so the very logical part of me says, look at your numbers, make sure you have enough cash flow, make sure you have a good book pe- bookkeeper, um, and report your numbers every week. Stay on top of your numbers, and then it. it takes a lot of anxiety out of running a business and you can be creative. You can't be creative if you're worrying about wage costs and all the other very necessary things in a hospitality business. So sensible Karina would say that. Karina who's loved the journey, loved being with the people um, and feeding people and like feeding people over time as well, customers over time and Seeing the relationships that you develop with your suppliers, with your staff would say, just go for it. Like just work, be prepared to work really hard. Work-life balance doesn't exist in the hospitality industry. It just doesn't. At an ownership level, you have to be, it is a lifestyle choice and you have to be 100% two feet in and ready for it to be a part of your lifestyle. Having said that, the lifestyle I love and other people that I, who are, you know, within my world, love it too. Of course it's hard. It's really hard. Anything worthwhile is. But I just thrive on it and you just have to be prepared for it to be all of your life. But it's a great life. It's a very rich, it's a very rewarding life. And the people I get to meet, the food I've eaten um, is, is amazing.
0: You deliver an, an interesting philosophy that is sort of overarching with the Salopian Inn where guests sort of can take their own journey in their own way, um, and it's really up to them. Um, tell us about what you mean by that and, and what sort of experiences um, diners are having.
1: Um, so I've never done a compulsory set menu, um, and there's a few basic things. We don't charge for our sourdough bread. Um We never have and we never will. So bread and water, you're coming into our home. um, We're just, this hospitality must start at just such a basic level that just that welcoming, you're here. And then from there, people can have a la carte or they can have a, a feed me menu we call it and, you know, we take them through a you know the culinary landscape of the garden and the producers of the region and that's quite a curated experience but I also really believe that if someone wants to come in and have you know, a glass of wine a pork bun and a salad that's great too and that to me is hospitality it's just welcoming everyone um, and having them on that day, that might just be all they needed. And just to have a moment um, with someone, because it's more than the food, it's people sitting and conversing. And if COVID's taught us anything, we need human connection. And so providing that backdrop of the restaurant where people can really come and relax, and it doesn't have to be two hours, but it can be, it can be four hours. Like <laughs> it doesn't have to be, it can be 20 minutes, and it is any accountant will tell you or a hospitality professional will tell you it is the worst way to do it. You shouldn't do it. But I believe it. Like I believe in it and you have to believe in what you do and you have to give people choice and, you know, chasing the dollar in hospitality will just, I just think it would just darken my soul. I really do. I just don't think it has to be more. It has to be, just, you know, we had an elderly couple in for Valentine's Day yesterday. They sat next to each other. They were apologising they were only going to share a plate of fish, but they sat next to each other, two glasses of wine each, and they shared a fish, which I thought was good going. <laughs> and it was, you know, we made their day. Like they were so comfortable. And I think letting the customer dictate the experience to an extent just makes people comfortable and then they enjoy it. And I want people to feel something when they come to in. I want them to walk away feeling like that was a good experience and I feel better, I feel nourished, I feel like someone said hello and really cared about my experience and, you know, was just personable. That's hospitality.
0: Well, Karina, you're an absolute inspiration, and it's been an honor to have you on the luminaries on Deep in the Weeds today to hear a bit of your story. Um, Please keep in touch, and uh, we'll catch up again soon.
1: Thank you so much.
0: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at deepintheweedspodcast or email us at podcast at Stay safe and be well.